0: All right, well, let's, uh, the drugs will hit me about 15 minutes from now. So if I collapse behind the pulpit, I'll continue to preach. You just need to listen as, listen, as if you're listening to Casper the, the Ghost. Amen. Mm. Well, let's see. Let me figure out what I'm going to preach about today. Let's go to Exodus in chapter 3. We always enjoy coming and being with you down here in this church. And um, so much, Brother Bill, you know this, so much like our church back in Oregon. And um, so, as Pastor said, we're able to get away a little bit more, and this time we're down here for five weeks. And I don't know if that's good or bad. You get sort of tired of uh, being away from home. But um, our daughter has a new grand has a grandson for us a new adopted baby so we're excited about that And he's having his first birthday and so we're down here to celebrate his birthday and they said well since you're coming down for his birthday why don't you come for thanksgiving well I'm all about eating I have no problem with that so we did that and then the birthday is this week and then they said well why don't you just stay for Christmas and I tried to say well I didn't bring any presents but that doesn't mean anything (laughs) to anybody anymore amen so anyway we're going to be here through the Christmas holidays and and then head back home in January for we have Brother Swanky in revival on the fifth, and we don't want to miss that. But anyway, my wife said, "Well, why don't we just fly down?" I said, "I don't want to fly in case I get mad at my kids. I want, I want to be able to get home. You know, when you're you're never around your kids, and then you're around them day in and day out, you get sick of them. <laughs> just now, Ryan, just I'm sure you and your dad have a great relationship. Just don't move in with him, but." Uh, <laughs> Anyway, but my daughter's out of town in Texas, and so that sort of made it made up for it. Amen. But we're looking forward to being with them throughout the holidays, and we've enjoyed uh, being with you. Uh, let's turn our Bibles to the Book of Exodus in Chapter Three, I think I said. And if you'll stand with me, please, we'll read a short passage. And um, what I'm going to preach on today is not necessarily about Christmas. Um, but a good preacher can turn anything into whatever he needs it to be. Amen. So we'll get there sooner or later. Chapter 3, a very familiar passage to all of us, I think, beginning at verse 1. And Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain uh, of God, even Horeb. Now this is the, a lot of people don't realize this is the first time Horeb is mentioned in the Bible. So the the Bible in this passage is not saying that this has always been a resting place for god or that he just hangs around mount Horeb. mount horb is mount sinai but it became known as the mount of god because of things associated the giving of the ten commandments so forth and so on but uh, it, it's not that god hangs around mountains i mean he makes them but he didn't hang around him he has a seat of authority in a place called heaven amen and um and so uh, moses goes to the backside of the desert now just a little bit of knowledge here. The back side of the desert is the backside of something. Amen? If I were going to go to the desert, I'd go to the front side. Do you understand what I'm saying? How many of you have ever been in a desert? I mean a real, I mean a real desert, not like what you have around here. Right? You think you live. Uh, the Bible says he went to the back side of it. When, In other words, he went a long ways away. He, he was going there for a purpose, and we'll see that in just a little bit. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when, Lord, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but put off, or put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Father, we're thankful today for this church. We're thankful for its testimony over the years and lord certainly for uh, their pastor and his wife and the staff that are here lord it it feels uh, always good to walk into a new testament church and lord uh, I, I don't believe for one i don't believe that the new testament church has even changed a whit since the first century and i'm thankful that there are still people today that are adhering to and loyal to subject to and uh, understand the value the importance and the strength that comes from a new testament church father we pray your blessing upon us now as we preach i pray once again lord you would give me strength and the uh, lord may this message today impact the lives of god's people for god's sake today we'll thank you for it we ask it in jesus name amen you may be seated thank you there's a another passage I want you to look at this morning, that's very similar to the one we've just read, uh, in in that the theme, mention of a great sight, and um, we'll we'll tie this together as we go along. I believe, Amen. Uh, but turn your Bibles to Matthew in chapter 21. Matthew in chapter 21. Jesus has just given a parable uh, concerning. Uh, the Jews and that their position is going to be taken away from them and given to another. And um, they realize that he's speaking uh, toward them, the leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, so forth and so on. And, and and they're questioning whether what Jesus is saying that God is going to exclude them uh, from the kingdom. Now we all know that God is a merciful God and God returns to the nation of Israel in in the future but at this point Jesus is telling them something that I suppose to a Jew especially to a man who had studied the scriptures throughout the Old Testament was not only aware of what God had to say uh, but also how the people responded to God down through the centuries of their history and so it must have come to them as a great shock and you ever notice that sometimes things can be a shock to you because they're true? And yet men have the ability, it seems, to, to take something that is the truth and turn it to their advantage. Make it seem like the one who's speaking the truth is the one guilty, not themselves. And I, I will imagine that because they desired to take his life at this point... That that's how they took it. They thought Jesus was a blasphemer. They were the people of God, the children of God. Why would God suddenly turn against them? Verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the scripture? I always liked the way Jesus made comments like that. Would you miss this passage? You're so proud of yourselves that you, you know the Bible, you read the Bible, you study the Bible, you know everything that's in the Bible. Did you not ever read? It's just a real short one. Maybe you just skipped out of it. Did you never read in the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? The stone which the builders rejected. Of course, that's a reference to Jesus Christ the same has become the head of the corner. In other words, he begins a building program. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. very similar to what Moses said in Exodus chapter 3. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof and of course we know what Jesus is speaking of is is the establishment I believe of the New Testament church Uh, he's talking about the kingdom and and the jews responsibility as is ours uh, to take the gospel into a lost and dying world the jews did not do that in fact they had a great deal of animosity toward the Gentiles in the world and treated them and thought of them as nothing more than dogs, unworthy of the kingdom of God. It had to have been a great shock to them to, to discover that Jesus was saying that the kingdom is about to be removed from you and given to someone else that will bear fruit with it. That's how we know we're talking about uh. uh The kingdom being given to Gentiles who will come to Christ. When we talk about the kingdom work of of God, we're we're talking about the plan of redemption. I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. In, in, In substance, we're talking about the plan of redemption. A wonderful plan for you and me. Indeed, all that have ever walked this earth. And by the way, it wasn't that the Jews did not understand this plan uh, plan of redemption. They had eyes, but they could not see. They had ears, but they could not hear. Uh, We're quoting from Isaiah 53, and, and it was clear in Isaiah 53 what the plan of salvation was all about. And the Jews were first to hear of this plan, and, and and yet they had neglected to 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 bear this message to the world, and 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 so uh, now the kingdom would be uh, stripped from them and given to another people who would bring forth fruit. That's you and me. So when we talk about the kingdom work of God, we're talking about the the plan of redemption. But not only the plan of redemption in itself. You see, the plan of redemption is a message. But without the propagation of that message, what good does it do us? You see, the Jews had the message, but they never bothered to propagate it. Not as they should have. And so when we talk about the kingdom work of God, when when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, He's speaking about that plan of redemption that we know so well, and second of all, the, the, the propagation of that very plan. And both are involved in the kingdom work of God. And as we all know in a church such as this, that the agent of that propagation is the New Testament church. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. I I thought uh, it was up to each of us to carry the gospel of the world. And indeed, that is our responsibility. But God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. One step out on a clear night, if there could be found one in California, and look into the heavens, you could discover that God is a God of order. And so it's not just about the plan, it's about the organized propagation of that plan. And and how could anyone uh, even read through the New Testament and not understand that that part and partial to the the propagation of this plan is that New Testament church? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus said, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is implying in that verse that that he will establish an entity, uh, an assembly of born-again scripturally baptized believers that will be faithful to carry the gospel into a lost and dying world. That's implied in Matthew 16 18. Not only is it implied in that passage, but uh, the New Testament church is on full display in Acts chapter 2. We understand that. We understand that in Acts chapter two, that when the gospel is preached, uh, three thousand some three thousand people are saved and then baptized. Two chapters later, five thousand are saved and baptized. And so, Matthew sixteen eighteen implies that Jesus will establish the New Testament church. It's on display in Acts chapter 2. It's expected in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. When the Bible says that he is the head of the body, the church. It gives us the structural order. It is magnified, the church is magnified in Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 23. This statement is made in that passage. And he hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body so the church is the body and the body is the church it's one and the same not only is it implied and on display and expected and magnified it is also cherished in Ephesians chapter 5 in Ephesians chapter 5 we see the following Uh, we see that Christ is seen as the head of the church once again for the third time in just this book alone I think that God was trying to get across the point. It's not something that men would organize. It would not be the institution or the inventions of human heart. It would be something that God would put in place. I will build my church. And so he is the head of the church once again. And Christ is also described as the Savior of the body in verse 23 of chapter 5. It's a reference to individual members that that, that comprise the local New Testament body of which Christ is the head. So when the Bible speaks that he is the savior of the body, it's not speaking of some mystical entity that we're all a part of. If in some way, shape, or form, we have had a so-called born-again experience. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that the individual members of a local New Testament church, that is the body of Christ, Jesus is the head of that body. Furthermore, we are told that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In verse 29, we are told that uh, that Jesus loves, uh, not only loves, but he nurses and cherishes the church. So in the Bible, when Jesus spoke and said, what you're about to see, this, this kingdom transfer, if you will, this movement from the Jew to the Gentile world to a nation that will produce the fruit, when Jesus said that, that's why he said, it's marvelous in our eyes. We see a statement like that, and you know, very rarely are there things marvelous in our eyes. I think one of the greatest dangers in the world in which we live, there's such a cynical world, You ever feel like you're a cynic? I sort of improve with that every day. I mean, if you watch the news at all, if if you're involved at all in politics, that is, watch it, not do it. uh, How can you help but become a little cynical? And in the world like that, we tend to read a passage like we did in Matthew and chapter 21, and when Jesus says it, it's marvelous in our eyes. We just sort of go, oh hum, but it really is marvelous. That for centuries, God had a relationship with a people called the Jew. And suddenly, when we come to the time of a new covenant, the, the, the founder of the New Testament church says, we're going to take the kingdom from you and give it to another. That's marvelous. Because it implies that, that God has turned his face to us. What is the Christmas? I told you I'd get there. What is the Christmas story? If it's not that God turned his eyes to you and me, I guess I'm not all of them. Give instructions to a preacher, they'll never get it right. Tasting? One, two, three. Mary had a little lamb. There you go. Give me that Billy Graham sound that sort of can you give me a little South Carolina accent? Can't do it. And so things like this ought to be marvelous in her eyes that God has seen fit to turn from others and turn to you and me. And yet, in the age in which we live, we're a little cynical. It's like, well, it's no big deal. You know, God just decided to do it. and It's just the way. It's bigger than that. It really is. And as Moses said, it was a great sight. It's a mistake to believe that the church does not exist today in its original form and format. Right. That men are thus free to recreate the church after their own image. That's a mistake. Amen. That's right. It's a mistake to believe that people can change the doctrinal parameters of the church of Jesus Christ and still have the same church that Jesus instituted in the first century. Things that are different, my friend, are not the same. It is a mistake uh, to believe that the New Testament church must evolve in order to keep its cultural relevance. I get so tired of that. See, I I know I don't look it, but I've gotten quite a bit older, Brother Bill. I I wish I had a mustache like yours. I think when you get old like you, that you ought to exalt, magnify that. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things that uh, happens when you get older, and I've said this, probably have said it here before, and it just I've, I'm just learning this as an older guy. I'm, I'm 70. I'll be 71 here a couple more months. I know I don't look, it. I've had an easy life. Amen. Back doesn't know it. But. but the truth of the matter is, when you get a certain age, people don't listen to you. How many have discovered that? <laughs> some of you about to. I'll tell you that right now. You get a certain age. I, I don't know where, whether it's at 55 or 60 or 65 or 70 or 80. I suspect it's sooner than 80. But after 55. But at some point, y- 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 you don't know it. You don't, you don't really. I mean, I still think of my mind like a man that's in his 50s. Amen? Uh, uh, but, but... It's when, you, when you're in a conversation with others and there's, there's a group of people and you make a comment, they, they look at you and go, oh yeah, and move on. Now as a, as a young man, they would never have dared to do that. But now it's like, yeah, yeah, you, you, we brought you here to eat, but you keep still. <laughs> These are important subjects and, and we young guys need to discuss, we need to discuss this and come to a conclusion to save the world. The sky is falling. And, and so I'm, I'm discovering that as you get older, and I, I don't think this is bad. I'm not resentful. I'm not angry about it. But don't you dare ask my opinion and then walk away as I try to give it over a period of 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. But I'm afraid this is not only true as we get older, but it's true the longer we hear something or know it. We tend to uh, hear something that we've heard a hundred times before and and it's just, oh yeah, that's old news. Stay with me. Stay with me. You know what I mean by that. Don't get in a conversation that don't keep up. Amen. We're we're long past that. It bothers me that we live in a day-to-day that... that, uh, Oftentimes, we think that we've got to change everything to be relevant to the day and age in which we live. Do you understand? The founder of the New Testament church is the Son of God. He is God. Do you understand? That means He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The message we preach is an eternal message. And to this point, it's well over 2,000 years old. And listen to me if we're all about the message, if that, if, if that which is ought to be marvelous in our eyes, if we're all about the message, why is it we think the trappings constantly need to change? Do you understand? If, 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 do you, you'll remember this. Uh, do you remember the old character on black and white television? Don't you smirk, you young ones. Remember the old Pinky Lee program? How I many remember who Pinky was? Pinky always dressed in a wild, um, what would what, what call it? Help me out. Plaid suit? And, and he looked ridiculous. And see, uh, 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 if I came into the pulpit today or if your pastor came in the pulpit today and he was wearing some outlandish suit and the colors were clashing and and you'd just look and say, what happened today? Where was Miss Wendy when he got up? You see, your eyes can become so focused on the trappings that you lose sight of the message. And I'm convinced, uh, convinced, Brother Bill, what's happening is, is that we have gotten so wrapped up in the trappings. Now, I don't mean the traditional things that we do in a New Testament church like sing praises of the Lord in prayer and prayer and take an offering. But I'm talking about all the things that are going on to create an atmosphere that's more carnival-ish than it is New Testament church. But if you dare say something to someone, even if they ask your opinion of it, they're going to take that worth a grain of salt because you come from a different generation. You just don't understand. Well, I understand. I grew up as a boy in all sorts of churches. My mother would go from church to church trying to find somebody who would preach the gospel. And my grandmother was a great old Pentecostal lady and I've seen a lot of wild things. I mean, it makes you nervous. Make you tell your mama not ever going back to that church again. <laughs> Too many snake handlers in that crowd. <laughs> but we have this mindset that we've got to somehow make ourselves relevant. Listen, it's about the message, not the trappings. It's about the message, not the trappings. We don't have to draw people to the truth. They should desire the truth. And listen, I I said this to somebody, I think I was talking to my son the other day, we were talking about, listen, when Jesus um, uh, ministered on this earth, if someone rejected the truth, he just went on. I said, listen, we're we're not about trying to win everybody in the world of Christ. We're simply uh, uh, pilgrims passing through this world telling others, why don't you join us? We're on our way to a city not built with hands. That's all we're doing. I mean Jesus never sat down and moaned and bemoaned his failure that, that, that on one day uh, uh, 5,000 would turn their back on him and walk away. He just kept going on. And those who would listen to his message, whether it would be the poor or the immoral or whoever it was, if they'd hear the message, he took them by the hand and said, Come with me. It wasn't a showboat; it was a lifeboat. Yeah. You see, I'm saying all this because when we use terms like a marvelous sight, or as Moses talked about a great sight, we think carnivalish. We think it needs to be Las Vegasy. That we think it needs to have. Uh, a modern contemporary style to it, uh, the music, the, uh, the, the way we dress, the way we act. Uh, we, we need to be just a little cool. And that bothers me as an old guy. That we're twisting the truths of God for the sake of compromise in a world that doesn't care about the truth. And so that brings us back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses, and you know the story. I don't have time to rehearse everything, but you, you know that Moses, as a young man, felt God was about to use him in a mighty way. Moses, if God was not about to use him, Moses was going to offer himself as a candidate. Moses was a young man that uh, was somewhat impetuous, but he was willing to to sacrifice his life in order to help someone who needed help at the time. Uh, It's it's not that I think. Uh, Moses thought, here I am, God, send me. I don't think he thought like that. I, I think he saw a need and stepped in to correct the injustice that he saw that indicates his character was a good and godly character. But I don't think he said by doing this, God somehow, will I'll find favor with God and he'll sanction my life and and I'll be known uh, uh, down through history as the great leader of the Jewish people. I don't think he thought like that. I think when he found out that character is not always going to be your stepping stone to fame and prominence, he left the country. And decades later, he older than me. And decades later, rather than try to be somebody, he wanted to know somebody. Do you, do you understand, Brother Ryan, that's where every person has to come to. I don't know most of you here. don't know any of you really well. But I want you to know that that the world uh, uh, attempts to tell us to spend our lives trying to be somebody. Whether it be a good way, a man of honor, integrity, character, which I'm not preaching against. But also to be cool and relevant to your generation and so forth like that. But the world wants us to uh, be somebody. I heard somebody say one time, you know there's only so much room at the top. Would you agree with that? In the political display that we see going on today, we see everybody struggling to be somebody. They want their name in lights. They they want to run something. They want to direct the show. They, They want to be somebody. And I think Moses was a little like that. But there came a time in his life as there needs to be in each of our lives and you don't have to wait until you're my age to find this. You reach a point where you say it's not about being as much as it is knowing the God of heaven. Wouldn't you agree? To know the God of heaven. And so somewhere as he watched the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law, a Midianite priest, I think that Moses probably, given the fact that, that Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, is called the, the Mount of God, but that's because of what happens later. But there was apparently something about Mount Horeb. And, and I've been in it. Have you been out in that part of the uh, Israel? It's terrible. Well, our our deserts in America look nice. I mean, you can drink water, glass iced tea, sit down and enjoy the desert. Uh, But the deserts in Israel are awful. They're just awful. Pictures don't do them justice. A self-respecting snake wouldn't hang out there. (laughs) Although at one time they did, I suppose I should say. And somewhere along the line, Moses comes to himself and says, you know, I've spent these 40 years in the desert. I'm a sheep herder. I'm not not thinking of of my people. I'm not a hero. I'm not a savior. I'll never be what I thought I might be when I was young. But you know, I still would like to know the God of heaven. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. my, My God. The indicator is that that Moses goes to the back side of the desert because that's where Horeb is at. Listen, anybody that's a decent sheep herder, you see that drug kicking in, can you not? (laughs) Say words funny, holy smoke, Um, uh, um, some hoax. (laughs) What decent shepherd, especially the son-in-law of a priest, what decent shepherd runs the sheep into the backside of the desert? You might skirt it. You might go along the edge of it where there might be some water and some grass. But, but you don't say, hey, today we're gonna take all the sheep of my father. in law that'll mess you up. Take all the sheep of my father-in-law and we're going to go all the way into the desert to the back side of the desert. Not the front, not the middle, but the far end of the desert and, and I'm going to get to Horeb and I want to meet God. Now that would imply something else. Now, Brother Bill, apparently the Midianites had some superstitions about Mount Horeb. There's nothing in the Bible that says a thing about this up to this point. And I think, Brother Ryan, that the Midianites, maybe because of cloud formation. Or because it was such a, uh, uh, a lonely, uh, wretched area that perhaps people would go out there and, and uh, maybe do some sort of penance in their religion. But it seems that Moses has heard enough stories about Horeb. He's saying, he says to himself, I, I, if God is there, I've got to find out. If God really dwells, if that really is the mount of God, uh, I've got to go and check it out. And I think that's what compelled him. And so Moses takes the sheep of his father-in-law and he goes to the backside of the desert and while he's in the area of Mount Horeb, he sees a bush that's on fire and yet doesn't burn. Hmm. And of course, he's going to think just like you and me. Any bush on fire is going to burn. How is it that this bush is, is not burning? And in and, and, and any sermon you hear, in any song that you've heard sung, in any poem, and in, the, in the conversation of people you have concerning Exodus chapter 3, you'll hear people use a statement over and over. Well, remember the burning bush. And God spoke out of the burning bush. And I understand what we mean by that. But that's not how Moses re- describes it. He doesn't, now I know in the dialogue you, you read the statement, but really when you read closely you see what Moses says is that's a great sight. That's a great sight. I've never seen a sight like that before. I've never seen a bush burn but not be consumed. And so the Bible says that Moses says to himself, I'm going to turn aside and I want to go. Now remember, he's here to find God. He wants to engage God. What he doesn't know is that God wants to engage him. And so when God sees that Moses turns to see the burning bush, the Bible says God speaks to him. And so Moses calls this a great, sight and it's so similar to the statement that Jesus made concerning the New Testament church in Matthew chapter 21 I think we can link those two things together Moses is here not to be somebody but to meet somebody Moses is here because he wants to engage God what he doesn't know is God is just as anxious to engage him and I'm telling you the same thing is true of you and me It's not about all the trappings. It's not about all the the religious things that go on. Listen, it comes down to just real basic things. That is, God would love to engage with you. And sometimes He'll put a great sight in your way. Sometimes He'll draw you off from the crowd. Sometimes He'll draw you away. But the message is clear. It's God desires to engage with you every bit as much as what you would desire to engage with Him. So why did Moses use the the great sight? Let me give you four things, and I'll let you go here today. Four things that I believe that we see in the passage that indicate why Moses described it as a great sight. And, And in this metaphor, if we use it as a metaphor, it becomes it becomes relevant in every century of God's people. What is it? Well, number one, Moses saw the burning bush not just as a bush that wasn't consumed. Moses saw it as a great sight because God, first of all, was doing something. Could I say this to you that that as you read the New Testament, it, it shouldn't take you very long to discover that yes, God does use the New Testament church. I mean, all you have to do is go to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and 5 and you discover very quickly that God's intention was to use the New Testament church. I enjoyed last uh, Sunday night uh, the pie fellowship. That was good stuff. Huh? Uh, if I was in my church, I'd have had two or three pieces, but I was in yours. so the Pastor didn't give me a second opportunity, so I went ahead and just took one. But I appreciated the testimonies. Do you know what, um, if I were in my church last Sunday night, and we're, we're Baptists, we'd have, we have fellowships just like you do. Always revolve around food. If I were back in Medford, Oregon, uh, at the Harvest Baptist Temple on last Sunday night, and they were having a fellowship time where people were going to give testimonies, it'd sound just like you folk. Now, faces get changed to protect the innocent. But, but I'm saying, you, I, it was, Mary and I both commented later uh, how much we enjoyed the testimonies that people, and you ever notice when you're in church, people give testimonies a certain way? You know, they don't say, well, I'm thankful for my job. Oh, they may be. Uh, th- I'm thankful for the car I'm driving. They may be. But in church, we do churchy stuff. You understand where I'm going? And, and, and we think that that is appropriate and it is, it is appropriate that when we're in church at a testimony time we ought, to, uh, we ought to say something about the church we love and about our pastor and his family and it just blessed me to be in a church where things are still done simply that, that somebody did not have to prove himself to be a most excellent pastor or a most excellent preacher for you to love on them. And you know yet, we're living in a world today that unless you are somebody and you've arrived, oftentimes you're just another one. And, and it's a blessing to people that say uh, things about their husbands and their wives and their family, uh, but also including their church and what this church means to them. Listen, it's a great thing to discover that God still works in a New Testament church. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever get over the wonder of it. Don't, don't allow yourself to come to a point where it's just church. And, and if I don't like this, then I'll go down the street and find me another one. You can't find churches like this. I, I, I'm convinced. Now. listen, I've traveled around the country over the years, Brother Bill, and I'm telling you, even some fundamental independent Baptist churches are not like this. You're fortunate. And and you don't expect and demand that those who stand in this pulpit be perfect. There's only two or three of us that could ever measure up. (laughs) You ever, I mean, you ever analyze yourself? You ever look at your pastor, why do I love that man? Why why does my heart go out to him? and, And if he needed the shirt off my back, I'd be the first one to give it to him if it fit. It's because God does a work. And God has done a work in this place. In fact, I will say this about your pastor, and because and, uh, if he takes me out to lunch, I want to go to a good place. Is that every place your pastor has ever been has been like that. Has been like that. God does a work in a New Testament church when a New Testament church operates like a New Testament church ought to. So, when we look at this, we see uh, it, this, this is a great sight because obviously God was about doing something. And anytime God is involved, anytime God is doing something, link up to it. Uh, get on board and get involved and don't question and, and dissuade and undermine. Just go along with the flow. Jesus said it was marvelous in our eyes. Number two, It was not only a great sight because God was active, God was doing something. But it was a great sight because the ground upon which God was doing that something was holy. Now, maybe not all of you will agree with me here, but it doesn't matter. But um, let me suggest this to you. I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that when you drive across, what do you call that, that little part of the driveway that goes down the gutter. I don't want to use that. The what? I like apron. When you drive across the apron, you drive upon holy ground. When you walk down uh, the sidewalk and make your way to the auditorium, you're walking on holy ground. I know we don't talk like that today. We really don't. But I'm saying that when you walk through the doors of this building and you take your place in your seat, you need to understand, this is where God promised he would work. Amen. If we'll do it God's way, his terms. Mm-hmm. And if that be the, cra- the case, then it's a great thing to know that God is working. But you also got to understand, the place where God works is always to be considered a holy place. I told you when I was a little boy, I grew up in a lot of churches and back and forth. And I can still remember. In fact, Brother Bill, how long do I have? Long do you want? No. Um, about two years ago, three years ago, um, it, it was, I think it was two years ago, Mary, when we were back in Iowa. Three years ago, my, my wife's folks had passed away and we were there. And, and, and on our way back to Oregon, we were driving a car. I said, could we go down to where I grew up? And Brother Bill, we were able to locate the church where I got saved in when I was seven years of age. Uh, it's all closed up. It's an American Baptist church, uh, all closed up. And I began to ask some neighbors, is there anybody that knows how to get into this building? And they said, well, I think there's a, a little lady on the bottom floor of the apartment that the church owns that has a key. And so I knocked on the door and I walked into this place and uh, Here's this little old lady, and, and she says, after I told her what I was there for, she says, well, I think I got it. I think I do have a key. And she brought up this big uh, Folgers coffee can and dumped it out and started going through millions of keys. And at the very bottom, she said, look, here it is. And, and she says, now, what are you, who are you? Where are you from? And I told her who I was. I was a preacher from Oregon, but that I had been saved. My whole family was saved in that church and baptized. And I, and I said, I'd just like to go into the old building. And because it was restored and uh, on the outside, it was in good condition, uh, built in 1866. And, uh, and so she said, well, sure, I don't send you harm in that. So she gave me the key and I got to go in. Marilyn was with me. We walked into that building and I'm telling you, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. Now the church today is just a, a liberal, liberal, liberal church. But in those days, it was not. And, and the paint color was the same. The carpet on the floor was the same. The old mosaic rug. The pews were the same. The communion trays were the same. Even Listen, I looked at choir pages. And the choir pages were dated when I was a little boy. And the pastor I was saved under, he donated the, the, the biggest choir book. And his name was on. And it was just a thrill to me. It had never changed. Uh, what, 60-some years? And we walked over to a place in a little Sunday school area, and I told my wife, right here is where I accepted Christ. Right here. It's still here. The, the floor was the same, all beat up on fur floor. The chairs were the same. And I had the privilege of kneeling there next to my wife and thanking God for all that he'd done uh, most precious moment I've ever had, I think, in my life, between me and the Lord. I was able to thank Him for saving me, for giving me my wife, for giving us our ministry and our children, and on and on. It, and kneel at the same place that when I was a little boy, age of seven, in that old building was built in 1866, was able to thank God for that. You see, you say, well, why would you do that? It's just a building. No, no, listen to me. It was holy ground. It's where God met with me and did something. Do you get it? It was a great sight. It doesn't matter what had become of the church since and and that the doors were uh, uh, blocked off now and they were not having services. The idea was it was the place that I got saved. I encourage all of you sometime in your life to go back to where you were saved and just thank God for what He did. It was still available to you, still able to do it. You see, it was holy ground. Do you ever find yourself I don't know if discouraged is the word for it. Do you ever find yourself uh, discouraged that you see very little holiness today? You you get tired of the things that you, you see in a supermarket? The things that you hear by those around you and the attitudes of, of people that, that are old or young, it seems like the attitudes that used to only be prevalent among young people are prevalent among middle-aged people today. Belligerency, arrogant. Do you ever find yourself wishing I lived in a different generation? That you were born too late? Or that you were born in the right generation, but you, you, you wish you could go back to those good old days? Listen, uh, we could use a good dose of holiness again. It was a great sight because the ground where God was doing a work was holy ground. Thirdly, it was a great sight because God's purity was on display. That's what the fire represents. It's one thing to have holy ground, but it's another thing to have someone stand in a pulpit and and, uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with great power. You see, when you come to the New Testament church, you, you leave a place that is not your refuge. The New Testament church is your refuge. It's a place you go to to escape what's out there. But when you come into this place, you see the purity of God on display. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I, I mean that, Brother Bill, when I go to my church, I get to watch people who love Jesus and love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. You understand what I'm saying? I get to come in and, and I see people that haven't seen each other all week and they kiss each other and they put their arm around them is how you've been? Where are you going to find that anywhere else in the world? And where the man of God can stand up as your pastor and proclaim the word of God, preach the word of God, and you soak it in. You don't get mad. You say, I'll never come back to that church. Well, good riddance. Go down and join the Mormons. Split one that needs to be split. And so, it, listen, the New Testament church... And this is broader. It, it goes beyond even that. But it is a great sight because God is doing something there. It is, and don't, don't ever minimize what God is doing. God works in small ways as well as He works in big ways. It's, 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 it's a great sight because the holiness of God is active. Number three, it's a great sight because the purity of God is on display like nowhere else I know of. Finally, finally, it was a great sight that day because God had something to say. Now, we didn't read it. You can read it. But immediately after Moses removes the shoes off his feet because of holy ground, Brother Ryan, God begins to, a dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Moses was so afraid he wouldn't even look up. The one he wanted to know, he found out. The one he wanted to know and wanted to engage with, what he discovered is God has plenty of things to engage you with. You don't have to say a thing. It'll take all your life to know God. It was a great sight because he came to a place, listen to me, where God had something to say. It's marvelous in our eyes. God will work. Here like no other place you'll find the holiness of God at work. You'll see the the purity of God among God's people that love him. And you know what? You can find out what God has to say on any subject that he chooses to engage us with. Thank God for your local New Testament church. And so we're at a time of the year, are we not? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? God decided to do something. And in this whole story, of the Christmas story, holiness and purity stand out. And that God had something to say. Would you just shut up and listen to him? If, that, if I were God, that's what I'd be saying. <laughs> Will you just, if I were an angel in the sky that night, I'd say, will you just shut up? We understand men like to engage with God, but you really have nothing to offer Him. Amen? So just be quiet, be still, and know that I am God. Father, we're thankful today for this time together. We pray, Lord, that you would work in people's hearts, that this message would help us to understand the God is a great God, that what God does is always marvelous in our eyes. May we understand that God wants to engage with us. May we be examples of God's purity and His holiness. And, and Lord, may we be attentive to what you have to say always. May you work in people's hearts that perhaps today needed to hear this message the most. we we'll thank you for it. With his bowed and eyes closed, How many of you here today know Christ is your personal Savior? You're saved. Know you're on the way to heaven. Would you raise your hand? Thank God for that. It's marvelous in our eyes. See what God has done. I wonder if there's someone here today. Say, preacher, if I'm honest, if my heart were to beat its last beat, if my lungs were to take their last breath, I cannot honestly say, I'm sure I would go to heaven. I would like to. I'd like to engage God on the subject, but, but I'm not sure would you at least pray for me? I will if you'll let me know. I'll not embarrass you. I'll not come to you, nor will anyone else. But would you raise your hand and say, Preacher, yes, you're speaking to me. I'm not sure. I think I need to be saved. Is there anyone like that this morning? Just lift your hand. Take it right back down. I'll note it. God will know it most importantly. Is there anyone like that today? All right. Perhaps you're here today and you're a Christian. Have the things of God... Have you just become callous to the things of God? Is there any coldness there? Is it every message follows another message? It all seems to be the same to you. Maybe there's just a work of revival that God needs to do in your heart. Maybe it's not God. I doubt that it is. But God can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He can bring you home. He can bring you home. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder if there's someone here today. Say, preacher, God is speaking to me. There was something you said today in the message that God spoke to me about. I need to do some business with God. Would you raise your hand? Yes, God is speaking to me today. I don't know how it happened, how I drifted this way, but I know I'm not where God wants me to be and I I want to get to the backside of the desert with Him again. Anyone else? Anyone else like that today? Could we all stand to our feet? I'm gonna ask the pastor to come and and today, let me encourage you.